Well, good morning. Good to good see morning. mostly the same people again, but there's, I think, probably just a small number who weren't here yesterday, and so I'm going to begin <clears throat> with just a very quick um, overview of what we touched on yesterday before I begin today. <clears throat> um, our title is Fathers, Sons, and Brothers, um, Our Journey of Faith and Friendship. Um, Daryl and I have been friends for almost 25 years, and um, we're, we've been reflecting on that a good bit in the recent times, especially for this, this class. And we've, uh, it's been a good exercise for us. Um, and um, we'll, we'll tell a bit more of that through some of our stories today. But we, um, we begin with the thesis yesterday that, uh, or the question, why is male friendship increasingly rare in our culture? And uh, Daryl surveyed some of the fairly recent literature that gives indicators of this. Um, <clears throat> and then we told our story of friendship, uh, looking over our journey together and what brought us together and how we've maintained that friendship over these good many years. We mentioned a third person who, uh, that came into our circle of friendship near the beginning, and uh, that, that enriched us. And then we spent the last section of the class yesterday um, trying to define friendship, a word that's used so broadly, ranging from mere acquaintance to intimate um, relationship, loving relationship, and um, arguing that, um, I guess we were arguing that, to use Plutarch's famous line, it, it may well be that we can have maybe a, a maximum of about seven friends in life, in this fuller, richer sense of a, a loving relationship, int intimate relationship. Um, so today, we're, we're going to begin by looking um, at what we would call our fathers and fathers and the challenge of friendship. Uh, this will be probably the major portion of this hour together. And then we'll talk a little about how friendships, especially male friendships, can spill over and bless other relationships in our lives, our, our families and our churches and uh, our, our mentoring relationships. And then we'll spend a little time on a sort of a theology of friendship. How is this rooted uh, in Christian uh, thought about our faith? We made a distinction yesterday between koinonia or fellowship and friendship. We may touch on that again today. And then we'll finally end with um, a look at some things that we have learned, at least, about the care and maintaining of friendships over time. <clears throat> and I hope we'll have time there, especially for some uh, interaction together, maybe questions. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm going to begin with sort of my story of um, my father, and um, I, I've thought about this for many years. My father died many years ago uh, when I was in my later 20s. And um, I mean no disrespect by what I say here. 
I've been tried to be very measured and reflective from many years perspective on this so um, here goes <clears throat> my father uh, was uh, 43 when I was born he had married in his early 30s my sister was born a year later and when I arrived uh, I, I arrived 11 years later at a time in his life when my father seemed more ready to be a very part-time grandfather than the full-time father of a little boy. My earliest memories are of a gray-haired man, hair parted down the middle, which was kind of distinctive even then, who wore loose-fitting trousers held up by suspenders and always white or tan long-sleeved shirts. Though he had a narrow face and a slim build, his belly was full, making him look, what can I say, a little pear-shaped. My dad didn't fish or hunt or attend sporting events. He didn't watch or follow football, basketball, baseball, or any other sport. He didn't play golf, run, or bicycle. And he didn't have any friends, at least that I ever saw. He had brothers and sisters in Christ and people at church who admired him as a teacher and a leader. But he had no companions, to use that term from C.S. Lewis we mentioned yesterday, a kind of second tier friends, you might say. And certainly not any friends in the fuller sense of that word as Lewis and others uh, used it. As far as I could tell, outside his job as a high school English teacher, he did five things. Walk for his health, garden for his health, attend church, read about healthy food, and prepare and eat healthy food. That was about it, at least the perspective of a little boy. And if you ask me, I would say that his main thing was preparing healthy food. If you had asked him, he no doubt would have said his Christian commitment was the main thing. But you would have to understand that to him, healthy, eating healthy food was a central focus of his understanding of Christianity. For him, healthy food meant the following, natural, organically grown, unrefined. It meant organic seeds, nuts, and dried fruits ordered from Pennsylvania or California. We lived in Florida. It meant no sugar, no white flour, no pork, no candy, no shortening, no store-bought foods with preservatives, no hydrogenated oils, no fried foods, no coffee or tea. Now, he's removed just about everything there that you might think you like. It meant shelves of natural vitamins and supplements. Um, brewer's yeast was a favorite there. And strange concoctions of these things mixed with liquids ranging from homemade yogurt to garden greens ground up with pineapple juice. This was before Whole Foods Market, not Whole Movement. <laughs> 
He held to his dietary strictures without exception wherever he went, which meant that he either ate sparingly or took his food with him. In all my memory of living in his house, I recall no exceptions, no slips, no departure from this regimen. To me as a, a, a little boy and into my early teens, uh, he was stern, distant, and mostly humorless. He seemed to spend most of his time outside of work, taking care of himself, resting on the bed in his bedroom office, reading about nutrition and organic gardening, walking or digging in his garden for 30 minutes each day, and preparing food in the kitchen. Beyond these activities, his life remained mostly a mystery to me. He didn't play ball with me, never fished with me. He did not read books to me. He did not take me on any adventures. He did not take me out to eat. He did not attend any of my sporting events, ranging from Little League baseball to high school track uh, to varsity basketball, where I was an all-conference player. He did not welcome my friends or participate in or initiate any of our activities. I do not recall a single party, celebration, or other social gathering in our home. The one thing we did together, um, was garden. Together would be putting it too strongly, let me say. Rather, I joined him in his garden, which was the one place, as far as I could tell, where a little boy could enter his world and learn alongside him. So I asked questions, watched his organic techniques, and listened eagerly to his disquisitions about the virtues of chicken manure, composting, and exotic greens like comfrey, which you've probably never heard of. <clears throat> the dinner table provided a different kind of encounter with my dad. It was the place I was grilled and drilled on three topics of primary importance to him. Healthy food, true religion, and correct grammar. After all, he was an English teacher. I would listen to steady commentary, dish, dish by dish, on the nature and merits of the food we were eating. And I knew that my grammar would be screened for improper word usage, slippage in syntax, and mispronunciation. And in the theology department, he would never have called it that, he occasionally instructed me on why our church was the one true church and on the moral rules that governed our family. These included not only strict taboos against drinking, all forms of alcohol, smoking, of course, television, which we never had, gambling, of course, but also the vice of extravagance or flashiness. We were not Mennonite or Amish, but he preached against all forms of ostentation, which included, for him, bright colored clothing, decorative home furnishings, and numerous other signs of what he viewed as worldliness. 
He would not allow my mother to wear bright colored clothing, especially red. Tan was his color of choice, though light blue was acceptable if it was dull enough. He wore tan jackets and trousers, painted the walls tan, and slept under tan bedspreads. <clears throat> Playing cards were taboo in our house. They were used for gambling, and he wanted nothing to do with that. So my mother and I played Old Maid and Rook instead. I never saw my mother touch a deck of playing cards all those years. But when he died in 1979, at age 69, it was not over a few weeks later until she bought some cards and began playing canasta two, three, or more times a week. And I know uh, that she missed him in certain ways in those years after his death, but she uh, seemed mostly to relish her freedom. For me, <clears throat> I've not missed him. What I've missed was, as I've said for several years, there was a father he wasn't. I missed his support throughout all my years of sports. <clears throat> I missed adventures together, laughter together, and his um, perspective on girls. I missed his showing me a pathway into the world of men. And I missed his approval and his blessing and a lot more. If a father's modeling of friendship with other men makes much of a difference to a boy, then I was left without a clue as to what rich and serious friendships might be like. I would begin to learn that only some years later <clears throat> as I stumbled by grace into what would become uh, real friendships. And you heard some of that if you were here uh, yesterday. So, Daryl. <clears throat> remember when I took courses in speech and rhetoric, you were taught not to be personal. In fact, I remember preachers and teachers say, forgive the personal reference. Do you remember people used to say that kind of thing? As though somehow or another, uh, by uh, removing the, the personal element, you're, you've done a better job. I would argue, forgive us for not having some personal references. I think of the, the lesson we heard last night uh, in the... Uh, the evening assembly with Sarah Barton, what, what a powerful personal dimension there was in her presentation. And I want to thank you, Leonard, for sharing this. Uh, this is not the kind of thing you normally talk about <laughs> at church or in Bible lectures or whatever. <clears throat> but C.S. Lewis says in Surprised by Joy, everyone must tell his own tale. And the, there is this deep and profound relationship between the stories of our lives and the way we live out our faith. And I want to thank you for that. One of my favorite writers is Frederick Buechner, who said, uh, and by the way, his autobiographies are just so powerful. Uh, there's, this, there's three in a, in a trilogy. One's called Telling Secrets, uh, one's called Sacred Journey, and one's called Now and Then. And I just can't say enough good about uh, what Buechner has done for me and my own spiritual journey. 
Um, in fact, I would say one of the ways I've gotten healthier is through the stories of great uh, Christian writers, and Beekner's on my short list. He writes at one point, My story is important not only because it is mine, God knows, but because if I tell it anything like right, the chances are you will recognize that in many ways it is also yours. Maybe nothing is more important than that we keep track, you and I, of these stories of who we are and where we have come from and the people we are and where we have come from and the people we have met along the way because it is precisely through these stories and all their particularity that God makes himself known to us, to each of us most powerfully and personally. If this is true, it means that to lose track of our stories is to be profoundly impoverished and not only humanly, but also spiritually. For Beekner, an authentic, first-hand, flesh-and-blood account of what it is like to love Christ, say, or to feel spiritually bankrupt, or to get fed up with the whole religious enterprise, he says, is essential to good preaching and teaching. In other words, it's called telling the truth <laughs> about your own life, even the hard parts. Uh, and so it seems to me that there's a validity in what we're doing here. Uh, my father was, was profoundly different from Leonard's in many, many ways. But I have to tell you, as I listen to Leonard tell his story, uh, there is this kind of deep resonance uh, with, with, uh, with his story because both of us were children, sons of men, who almost perfectly embody aspects of what uh, Garfield's book calls the male code, which is don't feel, don't touch, don't show what you really think, stay remote, be alien, uh, be distant in one way or another. Um, the way I would describe my father is, uh, I'm going to use the language of a friend whose father was alcoholic. And my friend tells a story that uh, his father uh, became a Christian when my friend was uh, like in his early teen years. And before his father became a Christian, he was uh, an alcoholic, a drunk. And the family situation was just terrible. But his father did go through a genuine conversion and a reform. And he left alcohol behind and he became a very loving and good father. And so my friend says, I actually had two fathers. And I had two childhoods. I had the childhood of being the son of an alcoholic. And I had the, the, the experience of a father uh, who uh, became a very um, a wonderful human being to him as a, as a father to a son. In my own way, uh, my story is somewhat developmental or evolutionary because there is the father of my youth, uh, and, and, and it was an experience of real harshness and excessive uh, punishment um, that really bordered on abuse and, um, and remoteness and so forth. But over time, he changed and I changed, and so I see my father through a kind of a bifocal vision. And I find it expressed beautifully in a, in a poem by a, an African-American poet named Robert Hayden. And he wrote a poem called Those Winter Sundays. It's a very brief poem, but in these 14 lines, uh, Hayden manages to tell my own story. So I'm going to read it to you. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from the labor in the weekday weather, 
made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the, war when the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of the house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary and look up the word office, <clears throat> it has meanings that are not what we usually think of. Today we think of bureaucracy and government and holding positions of power. But other uh, meanings for office uh, are in, uh, operating in this poem. It can be any duty or service or charge. In fact, in the King James Bible, when it says it's, it's desirable to, uh, to pursue the office of bishop, it actually has the old meaning, not of a position that's bureaucratic, but it means a duty, uh, a loving obligation, a service or a task to be, to be performed, a service or kindness done. And so when the adult son reflects back on the childhood era, he now sees that father in a different light, realizing his father was doing all kinds of things on his behalf that he took for granted or that were invisible to him. And so when he says, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? If it's lonely at the top, it can also be lonely at the bottom. And I think, looking back on my father, uh, who was a school teacher, he taught vocational agriculture, and, but his real love was his avocation and his vocation was farming and ranching. And we, had, we lived in a small town in western Oklahoma, but our family farm and ranch was about 45 miles away, and we spent many, many hours on the road driving back and forth between the home and the family farm. And boy, talking about the parenting I got, I knew what kinds of music you could listen to on the radio and not, and I knew how long your hair had to be or not. Uh, I learned a lot on those, uh, on those road, trips, road trips and working on the farm. My father's parenting style was very closely, apparently, to Robert Hayden's. Uh, it was all about hard work. It was all about providing a roof over one's head. It was about food and protection of the family. Uh, and there was also a spiritual dimension, too. I, you know, there's that little snippet of information in Hayden's poem where it says, his father got up and polished my shoes as well. In my household, you got one pair of shoes, and you wore them for the year. The idea that you would have sneakers and Sunday dress shoes, unheard of, you know. And, uh, and so your scuffed-up shoes would get polished for Sunday. Um, but the idea that you would show particular emotional care or uh, empathy uh, or intimacy, that was a mother's work or you figured it out on your own, basically. Uh, but over time, my understanding began to realize that there was a lot more going on in that household uh, than I could see in my youth. But if I ask the question, who were my father's friends, um, I come up really short because my dad was a gregarious person, in fact. Uh, I always dreaded going downtown or going out to a farm where my dad would check on uh, the projects of his students because my dad would talk endlessly, endlessly with these farmers. But um, 
and I was bored uh, out of my mind as I waited for him to finish up his conversation. So he wasn't a friendless person, but if you ask me who were his bosom buddies, to whom did he disclose his, the burdens of his heart, uh, and as I learned later, uh, how did he deal with the cruelties of his own childhood, which I came to see over time, I come up blank. I have no idea. So I have a few thoughts about uh, this whole matter of uh, my father and how that impa impacts friendship. Uh, the first point is what I've already said, is that in the rearview mirror of time and distance, I realized a lot was going on in my family's household that I couldn't see as a child. I also learned that the wounds of those early years last a very long time. Uh, Frederick Bigner, if I can return to him again, tells the story that uh, he lost his father to suicide at age 10. When, when Bigner was 10, his father uh, com committed suicide. And Bigner uh, tells the story in his autobiography about how that <clears throat> the way he dealt with it in part was to write novels. And he wrote a novel called Godric. And he says that he realized only after the fact that when he created Godric, he was working through his own relationship with his father. Um, he learns, he says, that Godric was his, his own uh, story. Uh, uh, Beekner writes, the sadness was I'd lost a father I had never fully found. It's like a tune that ends before you've heard it out. Your whole life through, you search to catch the strain and seek the face you've lost in strangers' faces, end quote. Beekner says his book was a, a, both a word from him to his readers, but it was also a message to himself. He writes, a large part of the truth that Godric had for me was the truth that although death ended my father, it had never ended my relationship with my father. Uh, I too lost a father I had never fully found. My dad passed away about four years ago. For me, he was an elusive man. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was strange and elusive to him. But over time, the anger and frustration between us diminished for uh, certain reasons. And when he, by the time he passed away, there was this implicit, silent respect, uh, though it can never be really spoken. Uh, it was a singular pleasure for me to help him edit his uh, memoirs. He wrote an autobiography in 2007, and it really needed editing. <laughs> and, uh, and he let me work with him on that. Um, but you know, he never could speak the blessing I longed to hear. And then um, uh, I realized I had to figure out a way to deal with that. Um, and I've dealt with it in various ways. I think uh, it's very uh, important to understand how I became so involved with church because of this anguish at home. Uh, I tell people, uh, my family was religious. We, we went to church mostly on Sunday mornings. Uh, but our view of religion was sort of like the way you would view personal hygiene. Everybody ought to have personal hygiene, but you don't talk about it. And that's sort of the way it was in our household. Uh, but for me, uh, faith became really important. And I remember walking across town. We lived on the opposite side of town from the church, but I would walk to church on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights because it became my home, the kind of uh, intimate place of, of reception that I couldn't quite find at home. 
and I found uh, real consolation through reading too. And it's interesting how people like C.S. Lewis and Beekner, who had very problematic family relationships. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you read uh, his Surprise by Joy, and boy, his father was a, a tough nut to crack too. And I actually found um, uh, real consolation and wisdom and, uh, and advice even in uh, hearing their stories. And certainly through marriage and as we're going to see through friendships, uh, there's a way in which uh, I found something that made up for what I couldn't find at home. I learned that finally one must learn how to let go and cease expecting what cannot be given or cannot be received. Uh, once uh, Henry Nouwen said, we have to keep forgiving people for not being Jesus. <laughs> we all need Jesus, and we want Jesus to be in the lives of other people. And Jesus is alive in, 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 in the relationships around us, but not to the degree that we need. So we have to forgive. One of the great moments of my life was uh, meeting with my father when I was about 30. I, through a counselor, uh, the counselor advised me to just pour out all my complaints about my dad, and I had a long list of it. And he said, you can decide later whether you want to mail the letter or hand him the letter, but just get it out, you know, put it on paper. So I did that. <clears throat> and then I mustered the courage to go meet him one day. And I don't know how I managed to meet with him without my mom being around, but we, we worked it out. And for the first time in 30 years of living, I told him my complaints and my griefs about his being my dad, the way he was my dad, and how that he, I felt had failed me. And amazingly, he listened. And then he began to tell me the story of how he was reared. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And his father, he was raised in a broken home, his parents divorced, and his father was truly an abusive man. I suddenly felt kind of lucky <laughs> by comparison. And it began to create understanding that really lasted uh, for the rest of his life and our relationship. And it, and it certainly got better, but he never, ever found the capacity to express his feeling. He was this man from the greatest generation. You survive the Depression. You, decide, you survive the Dust Bowl. You survive World War II. And you put food on the table and a roof over the head of your kids, and that's your assignment. And I had to learn to live with that. Garfield uh, has this amazing passage I'd like to share with you. And, and this is a guy who's a, a professor of psychiatry at Pennsylvania, at the University of Penn, Pennsylvania. So <laughs> he knows this stuff inside and out and teaches uh, courses and, and so forth. But he himself had this father relationship that was uh, very troubled. That's very parallel to what I experienced. And he's with his own therapist one day, and his therapist writes and says to him, You've got a really difficult decision to make. Are you going to continue to carry this mountain of grief and sadness on your back so that you can stay in your dad's world? Or can you let it go? And finally, allow yourself to become a real person. That's not an easy choice, Rob. Then Garfield writes, the mountain of grief turned into rivers of tears I cried long and hard in that session, and afterward, I spoke with a close friend from college who knew my dad, and he said about my father, yes, true, he's an impressive guy in his own way, but you don't want to emulate him. You and he are, and there was a long pause, different. 
Another pause, then he added bluntly, he's in your way at this point. And so then Garfield goes on to explain how he learned to separate himself from his father and to cease demanding so much of his dad. He says, this is a period I can look back on and recognize how I introduced a major revision into the male code I've been trying to uphold over the years. The model of parenting that my dad had so heavily relied on based on emotional restraint, keeping information to himself, showing only strength, wanting to rely solely on himself, no longer worked for him or for me if it ever had. And um, there's this real spiritual wisdom in letting go. In Psalms 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. We all know that verse. We sing it. But the Hebrew word for be still is not the word that quite has the meaning that you and I normally think of. It's not about just getting quiet or shutting up. Uh, Rapha means things like be in abeyance, relinquish, let go would be a, a pretty good translation of be still. Quit being in charge. <laughs> Quit dictating. Be still and let go. Uh, that became an important part of, of my story and of my, li of my life. And there's lots of good news here. Uh, God, we know, is a God who works good out of evil. He can take the ashes of loneliness and despair and create the beauty of new relationships and new friendships. And that has been my story. When I was a kid, I felt so different, and I have five siblings. I felt so different and alien to my uh, father's interest and, and what he cared about, that I actually developed a mythology that I was an adopted child. I really thought I was a foundling, you know. I, my five siblings, I had brown eyes and I had blue eyes and I was left-handed, everybody else was right-handed, and I just started going through this list as a little kid. And I just kept coming up different, 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 different. Th there's only one way to explain this. And, uh, and that is to say, I somehow I got dropped into this nest by accident or mistake. It's now utterly laughable. If I, I'm not, I don't have a picture of my dad with me, but if I did, you'd say, oh my gosh, he's a spitting image of his dad, you know. So um, uh, the foundling myth has, uh, has gone away. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is, you know, uh, out of that really pain and alienation, it, it drove me to find new relationships. It drove me to find mentors in my life, which I have been able to do. And to uh, really be on this quest for deep and lasting relationships, that if one can't find it in one's home, for whatever reason, uh, one can find it elsewhere. Uh, if you go back and read Surprised by Joy by Lewis, he has such a very interesting kind of a parallel story. Uh, his father, uh, you know, Lewis's mother died when Lewis was about 10 years old, about the age that uh, Bigner was when he lost his father. Uh, so his father's this widower, and they were having some financial tra tra uh, troubles, um, he, uh, Lewis describes in uh, Surprise by Joy of what he calls outrageous verbal attacks for the slightest provocations. He said, if I walked on the grass in my slippers and got them wet, or if I left the bathroom in a mess, he said, all of the resources of my dad's immense vocabulary were poured forth in his anger on his sons. 
his father uh, had some financial difficulties, and Lewis writes, all security seemed to be taken from me. There was no solid ground beneath my feet. And so in his dreams and thoughts, he, he would wake up thinking that his father and his other brother, Warney, his brother Warney, had absconded to America and left him behind, that he was just going to be abandoned. Uh, but then he goes on to show that this leads him to friendships. He says, friendship has been by far the chief source of my happiness. Uh, that's before we met Joy David Munn, by the way. And one of the great ironies is that he wrote this book called Surprised by Joy, <laughs> not knowing that a few years later, later he would meet Joy David Munn <laughs> and marry her. But uh, Lewis has wonderful things to say about how friendship uh, fed him. He, there was, at Oxford, there were these lifelong friends that he developed. Uh, and he says, out of this, he loved fighting and arguing with his friends, but there was this deep love. And he said, out of these perpetual dogfights, uh, his arguments, he, was a, he loved to debate things, developed a community of mind and deep affection. A community of mind and deep affection. And I would say that's what Leonard and I have found, um, a community of mind and deep affection. There's a great line in uh, Hamlet where... Uh, uh, Polonius says to his son, uh, who's getting ready to go off to, uh, to university, he's, uh, Polonius says, those friends thou hast and their adoption tried, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. Grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. And if I have any advice for you today, it is find those few friends and grapple them to your soul with hoops of steel. reflected on this, uh, picking up on Daryl's last point there, the, what we have described in our stories as um, deficiencies, you might say, in our fathers and our relationship with our fathers, in fact, rather than ultimately hampering this kind of rich friendship uh, that we've sought, probably, at least I would speak for myself, and, and Daryl has already spoken for himself, um, gave us an intensity of searching and of valuing these things, not knowing maybe how to do it very well, at least at first. But maybe these stories, our stories, uh, in, a, in a way propelled us, maybe out of almost desperation, to find a kind of, kinds of friends that we had not had and that we knew we needed. So I, I would say, to all of you and to anyone who would ask that far from being uh, a cause for despair or um, resignation that these kinds of experiences in our, in our growing up, uh, we can choose a different path. We can choose a different way to enter into relationships. We can, we can choose um, a certain kind of vulnerability that we did not see witnessed before us. And indeed, we have. We have. Um, <clears throat> the, the point uh, in our, our outline that we won't have time to address much is that uh, we, we believe that strong and rich and sustained male friendships 
spill out in their blessing and benefit to people all around us, to our wives, uh, to our children, however belated that may be, um, to our churches, our communities of faith. Um, there are benefits here, not just one-to-one. There are many other benefits that come because we are learning how to enter into these kinds of relationships and these kinds of uh, trusting vulnerabilities. So that's a point that could be developed a lot more, I think. I don't know if you want to say something, Darren, before you well, move on. Let me just mention an example or two. Um, one of the things that happen in uh, friendships like this is that you start helping each other be a better husband and parent. If something happens, we can call it co-parenting. We, in our case, we have children, and over time, crises come to the family or dilemmas or decisions. And having another friend who understands and cares to let you reflect your challenges, your dilemmas, how to do X, how do you, do, how do you do, handle situation Y, that's been enormously helpful uh, to deal with your own family issues, but having a safe space, kind of a sacred space, where you can process your questions and your, your dilemmas. I, I can't think, I, I could, can't imagine how many hours we've spent over the years telling our own family stories in the light of the other person, having a safe place to kind of work through stuff. It's been really helpful. Yeah, right. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think I would have been able to talk about what I did this morning, that, that story, without that kind of uh, trusting, processing, sharing over, over the years. Um, let me, we want to move just for a few minutes as we get, our, our time is slipping away, to talk uh, just a bit about um, a theology of friendship. R relate this to our, uh, our Christian faith. And we'll, we'll both kind of engage here, I, I think, for, for just a few minutes. Um, um, I would want to begin here by rooting a theology of friendship in the central doctrine of the Christian faith, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Christian, Christian faith is not a simple monotheism, but is a complex monotheism where we believe that God is, is a perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where they are bound together by the, the experience of perfect love. And that at the heart of the Christian faith is to be, to glimpse that, to begin to see it, and indeed, through the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit, to be drawn into where we begin to taste it. Even have our small amount that we can taste in this, this broken life to be drawn, or, or to put it differently, to, to walk, begin to walk the path of perfect love. Um, one, of my, uh, one, one of my favorite uh, theological writers, uh, not extremely well known, is a man na named Diogenes Allen. Um, he was my uh, great uncle. No, not really. Um, no kinship. Um, he taught for many years at uh, Princeton Seminary. And has written a book of that title uh, that has a wonderful, fairly brief chapter on the Trinity. The book is called The Path of Perfect Love. 
And uh, he's written in there and in other places, like his book entitled Love, on the dynamics and the, and the quest for perfect love, which he would say the Christian life is fundamentally about. Um, so, um, and, and what this, this quest involves is a key to it from our perspective is a learning to recognize what he calls otherness. Uh, and this, I would argue, is a key component of sustained and, and, and growing friendship. There needs to be a recognition of otherness. Here, here's the way he puts it. I'm going to just quote a little small paragraph. All of us have a pressing, boundless desire to be loved properly. Ironically, we all want so badly to be properly recognized and loved that we ourselves are unable to recognize and love others properly. Each of us needs and desire more recognition than we are in turn able to give. What we need and seek is true community. Community in which each of us is but one reality among many realities, um, and paying proper attention to others, and in turn receiving the affectionate attention of others. And Alan would say, both of us um, would say, friendship is such a community. Uh, marriage is such a community. Uh, the body of Christ is moving toward, can be such a community where we learn about otherness beyond the centered ego of our own lives, which everything revolves around and turns back into ourselves and people who have deep, deep ego needs that we've all can hardly see the other. And that the journey of the Christian life and Christian faith through the power of the Holy Spirit is learning to properly recognize the other. And it's a delicate thing of giving and receiving. It's not just giving. It's giving proper attention and regard to others. And it's being able, because we desire it so much and need it so much, to receive proper attention and, and blessing and love from other, the other. That's what true community is. And it's what perfectly the Trinity is. And so I, I view this as um, a key um, foundation, just maybe the, the fulcrum maybe, of a theology of, of friendship. Uh, I want to read one more line from um, Diogenes Allen here about this, about this experience of, he, he writes a lot about the experience of perfect love which he says is the deepest desire that we have as human beings. Nothing is deeper than that. And that here and there, through growing Holy Spirit-empowered community, we begin to taste that just a bit. Um, his uh, line is, um, okay, I'm just trying to find it here. I, I jotted it down before class, and uh, let me just to make sure I can find it. 
Um, well, I, I can't find it. But so community as a place of the experience and growth toward perfect love. And I think a key value, long-term friendships, intimacies, trust, is where we grow in that capacity. And indeed, I would argue um, that for friendships to be sustained and to grow over a long period of time, I mean, there are many ways friendships can break up, uh, all kinds of ways. Um, but for them to be sustained, we have to learn this give and take, this regard for the other. Uh, the, for, for example, the proper balance of candor and concealment. You know, to be just to lay everything out with unguardedness shows lack of respect and regard for the other, or oneself, for that matter. But being able to grow into a place where that kind of candor can be properly balanced with um, concealment, which is part of a respect for the other. So that's one key piece. Daryl might want to add to that here. Well, I would say that we need to look at Jesus as a model of friendship for us here. Uh, one member of the class yesterday brought up the point that I would have, I, I could make again here, and that is that Jesus himself models this love of all of humanity, this point in the dimension of love for all human beings. At the same time, he clearly has an inner circle of friends. And he has an inner circle within that circle. Mm -hmm. And so there is the 12. Uh, there is Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in the 12, there are the three. Clearly, Peter, James, and John have a relationship with Jesus that's different from the others. And then there's that mysterious disciple whom Jesus loved. To me, you just have a, a really rich model of these circles of friendship. And we don't have to apologize for the fact that we can't be friends with the whole world in the way we might be a friend to a particular person or a particular inner circle of persons. It seems to me those are not, this is not a zero-sum game here, you know, that if you have a friend here, you can't have a friend over there. But it means that the way we're constructed as human beings, that we are meant to be in a particular kind of fellowship with certain people in a way we're not with the rest of the world. We, we can't disclose everything about our lives to everybody. We know when people cross the line and just kind of spill their guts in, in inappropriate ways, you know, in public spaces. That's just not a very healthy thing for the audience or the person. And so we have to figure this out. And it seems to me that Jesus really authorizes us to be smart about this, about being careful about where we uh, take, take our stories. I do think John 15 is important. Uh, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. <clears throat> here, here is that sentence I was trying to find Good. from Alan. He says, the life of the Trinity is a perfect community and it is the kind of community for which we long. It satisfies our craving to be loved perfectly and to be attached to others properly. And uh, again, friendship is one such place where over time uh, one grows, I think, in this, toward this capacity. Um, well, 
in the time we have left, we thought we'd take a couple of minutes anyway and talk about the whole question of what do you do uh, when friendships fail or when the, your, your close friends move away or die, pass away. There's a huge problem for people who are older, like me, uh, when uh, through various circumstances, uh, geographical moves, through just uh, uh, illness and death, we find our circle of friends shrinking. And uh, the question is, is there anything we can do about that? And the answer is, yes, we can. Uh, and I, just a couple of bits of advice about that. Um, it's intentionality. Uh, studies show that men have fewer friends the older you get than women, although it's a problem for both genders, I think. It's especially acute for men. Uh, they tend to spend less time investing in friendship. In another play by Shakespeare, let's work this one in, uh, Portia in The Merchant of Venice learns that her intended husband uh, has a very good friend in deep trouble. Uh, Shylock's out to kill him, in fact. And Portia says, I'm going to do what I can to save this friendship. I don't even know her uh, fiancé's friend, Antonio, but she knows how much she loves her fiancé, and she decides if, if he's as good as he is, then his friend must be worth saving. And she describes a real friend as one, as those who waste the time together. And I love that phrase, because in modern American culture, we do not want to waste our time. We have too many important things to get done, right? And the idea that you would waste your time uh, is, a, is countercultural. It's a little bit subversive. But again, Shakespeare's right on this point, putting those words into Portia's mouth. If you are not willing to invest time in a relationship, it's not going to survive. Yeah. Just mark it down. And so, in one article I read recently about a woman named Diane Cole, she says a simple strategy for friendship is to create what she calls containers. A container is defined as regular, a regular activity that creates a structure or a timetable for getting together. How many times have you said or someone said to you, we really need to get together sometime. We should have coffee sometime. Don't say that. Get out your day timer or your smartphone or whatever and say, let's make an appointment a date, a time, and a place, and keep it. Don't say this stuff. This is like the old Cats in the Cradle song, right? One day we'll get together, right? Uh, uh, and it doesn't seem to happen. So create that container, uh, even multiple times per week if possible. We have this friendship that's 855 miles apart, so we can't do it weekly. Uh, but we can call. And we can look at our calendars and, uh, and set dates where we are going to meet and spend time together. And we found ways like through uh, Harbor, you know, to, we piggyback on other conferences and, and, and meetings and gatherings and add on time for us to get together. Uh, yesterday I used the, uh, the metaphor of gardening and how that you, uh, for plants to flourish, you need the right nutrients and the right light and the right temperature. And I think we ought to think of uh, friendship as uh, a gardening and we have to constantly renew the, the, the plant life for it to survive. Um, and to keep looking for places to develop occasionally new friends, not just depend on those friends that we made 
uh, a decade ago or a half century ago, but to find new ways to add trends. Do you have anything you would like to add? Um, well, we are, I think we already said yesterday or today that there is a certain measure of equality, it seems to me, in a, in a serious and longer-term friendship. Um, you know, the, the difference between koinonia and fellowship in the body of Christ is we, we're supposed to love all the brothers and sisters who've come from all kinds of stations of life, and there, there's often not much equality. But I think the core, one core for lasting friendship is a certain measure of equality, where we have some common interests, maybe some common level of education, um, and um, a certain personality attract, I mean, certain admiration for each other uh, because of uh, the, the very personality that we have. Uh, I think that's a, that's a factor. Yeah. I will say uh, persistence has also been a payoff here. Having moved uh, a bit, I tell people I can't stay in one spot. It seems very long. Every 14 years, I end up moving. It seems like I have this 14-year itch. And uh, moving back to Abilene after being away for 14 years, I realized that certain friendships had gone thin, and other people had moved away. And as I say, the events cards were full. They didn't really have room. And so I've had to try to find new contacts in my local community. Uh, and, but I realized that not everybody's open to that. So I'll go to coffee with somebody, and, and I kind of just test them a bit to see what their level of interest is. And many of them just want a superficial uh, contact. They're not averse to it, but they don't, they don't really need me. They don't, they're, they're, their lives are full or whatever. Uh, they are happy with that companionship level, you know. Uh, and, and that's fine. Move on. <laughs> Take someone else to coffee. <laughs> you know? go, go to breakfast with somebody else, you know. And cross over your own age demographic. Mm, when I was uh, in Abilene and a much younger man over 25 years ago, I remember uh, one of my uh, one of the people most beloved in this in, in Abilene in the church was a man named Deb Orr. Some of you probably knew, knew Deb, and Deb was probably my senior by a generation. But he wanted to go to breakfast with me, and so we would go to the town crier and have breakfast uh, often, just to communicate, and it, and it deeply blessed me. I hope it did him some good too, since he, he kept it up. I, I have to assume it might have. But I really, really appreciated that intergenerational contact. And it seems to me that as you age, you also need to make friends below your, your age level as well, yeah. to the degree that people are open to it. I think uh, we are too, too age segregated. Holly, can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have a minute. Does somebody want to make a comment? <laughs> uh, Daryl Leonard, one thing I would add is sometimes I've been discouraged that, uh, you know, it seems like I'm the one that initiates the meal or whatever it is of my age. And it's if I don't, okay. then nothing happens. Yeah. And I've been discouraged, but I've realized I don't know if it's a gift or what it is. I realize that if I want to have that friendship and it's meaningful, then not to be discouraged or get angry about it, but just do it. Yeah. Because I have some people that will never call me, but yeah. I can reach out. Yeah. Thank you for that comment. Yes. As you revealed your to me that you at some point or some long period 
Yeah, right. I tried to indicate that when I quoted the Henry Nowen line about we've got to forgive others for not being Jesus. We, we want everyone to be Jesus to me, and, and I'm not being Jesus to them entirely, and I'm wanting your forgiveness for my failure, and I had to forgive my father that. Uh, there's an old saying that anger is like a knife that you hold by the blade, and as you wield it, you are the one being injured and being cut. And to recognize the, the, the real personal danger of harboring and carrying anger through the years. And so even in that poem I read to you by Robert Hayden, Those Winter Sundays, I think you can hear the element of forgiveness in there. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere love? He sees his father actually having love of love's austere and lonely offices. This father was performing acts of love daily in the lives of this family, and no one ever thanked him. No one ever thanked him. And again, that's the story of my family in, 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 in a very concise picture. Uh, now, maybe we thanked you, Dad, on Father's Day. I think we did, so it's a little extreme to say we didn't ever thank him. But I don't think I fully appreciated what it was like to have six children and to have an annual salary of $4,900 as a teacher. You know. And so the way we survived is we raised our own beef. We had our own garden. You know. I, we would drove out to the dairy outside of town. We bought raw milk for 50 cents a gallon because you had five boys who were drinking about a gallon a day. You know. And I, I have profound gratitude for my father. But there's still this sorrow you carry. It's like a wound. You know, you can be wounded and you move on with your life. You're fine, but you're still hurt. And let me say, um, my father gave me the great gift of caring about language and words. And I've come to really see that over quite a few years. That was a, a, he drilled me in that, and that was his gift. One of his gifts to me. When I read Leonard's uh, statement about this problematic relationship. I thought the irony of this, he is so eloquent. I'm so eloquent. I'm outclassed by the <laughs> I read what he writes. He is such a good communicator. And so there's the gift of his father showing up. Our time's up. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.